Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again. Here we are, middle of January, the Ides of January, if you will. Uh, and well, it's been a terrific start to January uh, for uh, markets and, and uh, across the board. It was a terrific year last year, and, and of course now we've got a terrific start. And we're going to have a, we've got a wonderful forecast for you, a fabulous lineup of guests, and we're going to start with our friend Jim Urio. He's the fan favorite. Whenever we need to know what's going on, we go to Chicago and we go to Jim, usually uh, broadcasting from Brant's. Uh, which is the uh, absolute best burger you can get in Chicago. If you're, if you're in Chicago, you've got to go to Brands. Uh, uh, remember that on the Farcast, we believe that money is hard to make, that hard work, old-fashioned research, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, and remember, above all, emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you can imagine, Jim, I gave a speech. To welcome, Jim Urio, to the Farcast. We're so glad to have you back. Thank you for having me. Jim, I gave a speech uh, yesterday uh, in Washington, and I, I asked the audience, I said, I'd like you to think back to 2009, uh, to that March 9th low as we were trading below 6,000 on the Dow. And if I had told you that you should take every nickel you had at that particular precarious moment and put it into stocks and don't stop there, mortgage your house and everything else, hock the family jewelry, and put it in the stock market because, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be up 22,000 points in just 10 years. They would have locked me up and had me taken out in a straitjacket, if not fired me for being a lunatic. And yet, it happened. And actually, up a little more than that. So when you have that sort of predictability and visibility into this business that you and I enjoy, how are you supposed to figure out, Jim, where we go from here? Uh, and, and, but, but please tell us what you think. But, but, but you know, there's, there's a message in all of that to investors, I think, uh, that, you, that you have to invest for that long term. But anyway, uh, it was interesting to watch the faces around the room when I got them to really remember how they felt on March 9th, 2009. Do you remember how you felt March 9th, 2009? Oh, no doubt about it. And that's, that's one of the things you just hit on. You talked about emotion being the foe of the investor. And never was it more underscored perfectly than right then. I, you know, when you think everything is absolutely going to hell, I hope I can say that on your show. Sorry about that. Oh, and yeah, that's sure. This the is time when everybody else thinks that at the, at the same time, and that's when you're wrong. You, we've talked about this before. The most I've ever learned about investing was from the uh, – the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza was pretending he was a, a stock trader. Yeah. You know that one where he said, well, here's my method is when everything in my brain tells me to sell it, I buy it. I love that. It, and it, and it, it's, it, there's a lot of merit to that, isn't it? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Because what it really saying, I don't know if they knew what they were saying at the time, but your emotion is, is usually shared with everybody else. And when everybody else shares the same emotion, it usually means that that move is over and it's going to reverse. And it did. Now, throw in the fact that, that you know, the world's central banks just started dumping money at every problem <laughs> they saw for the next 10 years. That's, that's beautiful, too. It happened to coincide with our emotions being the worst. So, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, it's just the point is don't let emotion scare you. Okay, but uh, you, you, you just said something important there, too, because 
we just had a 30% year in stocks. We're seeing that momentum carry on into 20, 2020 here. Uh, stock prices continue up. Everybody's feeling complacent. Is this a time then when you say, geez, everybody's saying it's going to keep going up, the Fed's on the sidelines, this is when I should sell, or do you pay more attention to those central banks around the world, including our own, that continue to keep rates low and dump money into the market? What, which of those prevailing winds should we listen to? I mean, kind of the wisdom or this new normal where central banks just want to keep pumping this thing up? Well, I can tell you what I listen to, and, and people argue with me on this all the time. I think the single biggest thing, not by a lot, but the single biggest thing over the last 10 years is the central bank. When our central bank, there's two different things that happened in the last month that made me a little more bullish. And obviously, the opening the doors in the repo market, increasing their balance sheet was one of them. But the second was the James Bullard speech that he, where he talked about letting inflation run a little bit. When you, not James Bullard, it was Jay Powell. But James Bullard feels the same way, too, because he gave a speech similar to that a week before. But it sounds well, but James like Bullard could change his opinion in the next 10 minutes. I mean, he could give a completely – I mean, Bullard could give a completely contradictory speech, you know, in two more days. Uh, Jay Powell you can listen to. Bullard is an interesting character. I like Jim Bullard. I, you know when, when you're, like, at a barbecue and you're, you're trying to light the coals and you've tried three different times and by the fourth or fifth time you just dump the whole bottle of lighter fluid on it? <laughs> to me, that was like – when he was talking about inflation, he sounded like a man so frustrated – that they can't get the inflation that they want and they can't control it, that they're willing to do something that, you know, may in the long run be stupid. Uh, I'm not oh, saying count it on is. It. Absolutely count on it. Policy error has killed more bull markets than anything. <laughs> hey, man, I didn't want to be so mean this early in the morning, but hey, what the heck, you're right. It's definitely... It's well, see, that's why I'm in Washington. You know, in <laughs> Washington, we start out the day mean and get meaner. Yes. There's no doubt. So, so rates are going to stay accommodative. When you look at, in my opinion, you know, our tenure um, as compared to Germany, you know, we could, they can try to get inflation, and that would steepen out the yield curve and make long-end rates go higher. But then you look at the rest of the world, and there's this huge trade that's linked between German tenures, our tenures, Japan tenures, our tenures, and they can't go very high. As a matter of fact, I think there's a chance that our tenure goes lower, even when they're trying to get inflation. I don't know if they're going to be successful or not, but all those things are good for the market. Well, and you're right today. Our 10 years, 1.79%. Uh, uh, the Bund is still negative. Uh, the Japan, uh, Japanese 10-year is absolutely flat, actually one basis point. The Japan 10-year today is yielding one basis, basis point. Go back up the truck, ladies and gentlemen. You can earn one <laughs> basis point over the next 10 years in Japanese yen. So, Jim, as you look out now, and we, you and I always try to think, uh, we, you and I look at, at the markets kind of similarly, but perhaps our uh, investment approach is a bit different um, in that I, I, I do tend to be very long-term and I don't trade very much at all. Our turnover last year, I think, was around 15% at Farm Miller in Washington. So we, we, we really are kind of buy to hold. I hold as long as I can. But what are you thinking as we get into this year Will the central banks keep this thing afloat? Is there enough uh, deficit spending? I mean, between a trillion dollars being pumped in to the economy through deficit spending by the government, plus the repo market uh, cash coming in, which is, they say you can't call it QE. All right, you can't call it QE, but it's, what is it, $20 billion a month? I mean, it's still, uh, I mean, call it what you want to call it. The Fed government's just... Uh, throwing cash, uh, what did you call it? More lighter fluid on an already burning fire, I think, aren't we? Well, I, I think that once the frustration takes hold of you, which 
it has the Fed. It's very difficult to extricate yourself from that. Like I said before, I think they're on a path to to do something stupid if they haven't done that already. It's, it, it's, I hate to be talking in metaphors, but in for a penny, in for a pound. They're not going to just all of a sudden say, yeah, you know what, we're going to raise rates because the economy is going pretty good. That's not the way they're going to do it if that would risk cracking the stock market. Remember, all you have to do is rewind the tape. A couple years ago, it was in August. Uh, somebody gave a speech, I think it was Bill Dudley, that everything was fine. Yep. Next week later, next week the stock market cracked 8%, and he said the case for tightening has changed. What changed? I, what changed is the stock market broke 8%. 8%. So they, do, they, do they care about asset prices? Well, of course they do. They don't want to be the guy that ushers in the uh, the break in the, the big break in the stock market. So am I still confident in the market? Yeah, I, I still am right now, and I'm still staying bullish. I mean, do you think that we will have a, we've got another 10%, 20% year here? Barugian says, Barugian says, you know, he thinks that this momentum carries through the first quarter maybe, and then it starts to tail off, that, that's, that this strength will not last as it ages. And Jack was right last year, which, which is, uh, he, was, he was amazingly right last <laughs> year. But um, uh, now, now he's, uh, he's got a different short-term call, and I don't know how to make these short-term calls. So please tell me, what you does that make sense, or what do you think for the year? Yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense to me too. I think there's a big risk lurking for 2020 that we're a little bit underestimating at the time. And the next thing, when I say this, I don't want people to get confused to think it's a political opinion because it's not a political opinion. It's an absolute policy fact. Bernie Sanders is gaining in the polls. If we believe that he could become president, he is not going to be friendly to corporate America as, as others may be. I don't like when you bring that up in polite company, everyone looks at you like you just brought up politics. I did not bring up politics. It, Bernie Sanders, if he was standing right here, would explain to us that he wants to rein in corporate excess. Well, that's not a good thing. And he's gaining in the polls. If there's a time where we believe that he could win, I'm in my mind, I'm 100% certain that that would be devastating for the economy, and I'm 75% certain it'd be, it would be devastating for the stock market. That that other 25% is that the Fed will really get going if that happens. Well, it's and you wonder. So a couple of really, I think, important points there. In my talk yesterday, and when I start, I give these get invited kindly to give these talks all around the country, uh, and particularly at this point in the year. Uh, I'm sure you do as well. And one of the things I ask people to do at the beginning of every talk I give now is to please turn off your political ears. I have to talk about immigration. I have to talk about student loan debt. I have to talk about all of these economic things that are political hot potatoes, but I'm not making the political comments. So, and I said yesterday, if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg is elected, given the policies that they have outlined, their policies would be devastating to the economy. That's not a political comment. Um, not even the slightest bit political. It's just a fact. Just a fact. So uh, with all of that in, in mind, um, you, you think we're fine for this year? Fred and Ethel are listening now, uh, uh, Jim. And, and one of the things that I said yesterday, too, was now more than ever, I was on CNBC yesterday, you, you, you have to take a look at the, what you own, why you own it, know that you've got good balance sheets and strong cash flow and margins and not too much debt and good returns on equity because at some point this music stops and you better have a chair. We've talked about this before. For is, is the, the raging bull that I've been over the last, call it nine years, but yes. you know, particularly the last year and a half. And you've been I right. 
Yeah, and I but and I sold some stock and put on some serious hedges at the end of last year after a thirty percent gain. I think it, for me the investment part of me, and I, I view myself as a trader, a medium term investor, and a long term investor. And for the medium and long term portion of it, I did some rebalancing. I had a lot of stock because of the move that we've had. And I think you always you got to live to play another day. You got to allow yourself to to admit that you might be wrong at least on the short term. I think there could easily be a four percent crack. Even in the next month, uh, a four percent correction just based on some market position, and then maybe you load up a little bit more. I feel that way every minute of every day that it could be a four percent or five percent or a ten percent crack. I do expect that at some point. I expect this market to go down. Ladies and gentlemen, rebalancing after you take a look at the gains we've had was the advice from Jim Urio, and I certainly agree with that. Jim Urio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, our great friend from CNBC, the far cast favorite absolute analyst that we have on. Thank you so much for being with us. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back and talk about the debates with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress when we come back on The Farcast. Thanks for joining us this week on The Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We also bring you a daily podcast, The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. You get a summary of markets, headlines, commodities, and futures before the opening bell. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Radio Public before 8 a.m. each day the U.S. markets are open. The Farcast, three-minute morning brief. And now, back to Michael Farr and The Farcast. Welcome back to The Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. We're... Uh, broadcasting today from Washington, D.C. on the Ides of January. The skies are clearing. We have a bit of sunshine, and we hope that that is a sign uh, here in Washington. Uh, terrific first segment with our friend Jim Urio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, covering, I think, many ways, what, uh, be paying attention to what we don't know and understanding uh, what we don't know and why that's important to take a look at what's going on in the markets and all of the gains that we've had in uh, the past few years. And Jim said he'd been rebalancing his portfolios uh, for all of those gains and probably taking off a little bit of risk, not really a market call, but more uh, recognition that his stock portion had probably risen a great deal. So uh, always good advice, uh, particularly as the new year begins, to take a look at those positions that have uh, gotten perhaps a little bit too big. Also, one thing we didn't mention with Jim was the concentration of those FANG stocks has gotten even higher. The top five of the FANGs now represent 18% of the S&P 500. If those stocks move up and you don't own them, you're not going to participate in those gains. Should you own all of them? We don't think so at Farr Miller and Washington, uh, but you should check with your financial advisor. Also, if those stocks go down and you don't own them, you're going to outperform because they make such a, uh, such a huge weighting. One analyst at the Luthold Group said that any time that Apple has gotten above a 4% position, it has underperformed over the next 12 months every time. I didn't know that. I'll take uh, the Luthold Group at their words. But both Apple and Microsoft are above 4% positions. Now, both of them almost 4.5% of the S&P 500. Can you believe that? When you take those uh, FANG stocks, by the way, just as a group, they as a, have a market capitalization 
larger than Japan's GDP, larger than the third economy, largest economy in the world. That is fascinating, uh, particularly when you consider that most of those companies, a lot of those companies weren't around 10 years ago. That's just fascinating. 15 years ago. Facebook. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Uh, so uh, now uh, we have uh, the rest of the forecast, which it just gets better and better. Dan Mahaffey uh, is joining us from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. Les Munson is going to be with us in our third segment, though he's already here and at the microphone. So please chime <laughs> in with us, will you please, will Les? Uh, it is wonderful to have you both with us this morning. Dan, as usual, we're going to struggle to find something <laughs> to talk about as we look about yes. what's going on in Washington here in the new year. Uh, Iran uh, was a big problem a couple of weeks ago, not a big problem today. China, big problem a couple of weeks ago, might not be a big problem today. And we had a Democratic debate last night. We have impeachment that's starting today. Um, I don't think we have a lot to talk about in terms of Brexit, but who knows? We could always <laughs> yeah, get Yeah, we can always find something. Well, you know, there. with Megan leaving, I hear they're calling that Mexit. Mexit, yeah. Mexit. We'll, we'll save that for the uh, the royal family special podcast. That do we'll you do. know the difference between Donald Trump's impeachment and Bill Clinton's impeachment? I do not. Uh, Bill Clinton knew who his whistleblower was. Ah, uh, <laughs> okay, okay. There we go. I'm sorry. That's how you know. <laughs> That's how you know. There's uh, the this morning is a podcast show. Yeah, we're, this not, is the... we're not on the air. All right. Yes. Uh, Dan, w of, of that <laughs> list of uh, uh, long lists. Yes, of that long list. Why don't we, why don't we, uh, why don't we start with Iran? So I'll, th I'll start with, yeah, we'll start with Iran. And I think that's interesting to see how that, um, you know, certainly we had that retaliation, and and I disagree with anyone who says that the Iranians purposely missed. If you actually look at the damage they afflicted on our al-Assad base in, in Iraq, they hit their targets. I, I think it's a testament to our intelligence and our early warning systems that we were able to get our, our personnel sheltered uh, in time and, and thankfully avoided casualties because I think that prevented a further escalation of this, that the Iranians had been able to take their shot back at us. We didn't have any casualties. And the president's instinct to uh, perhaps tone down this crisis after launching that strike on Soleimani, you know, understanding that that had changed the paradigm, uh, but also saying that the, that this uh, finite exchange had to, had to have its finite end uh, and, cho and choosing to de-escalate. So, for all that sound and fury, um, we're we're pretty much back to where we were before. Um, and I think one thing that worked out, uh, even though it was a, a truly a tragedy, but we will see it unfold, is the pressure that's now on the Iranian regime uh, for their accidental shoot down of that Ukrainian airliner that morning as well. Yeah. Um, that that has really put the regime on its back foot, given that uh, our strike had, had really united the Iranian people. Dan, uh, and I saw Les uh, Munson nodding when you said that uh, uh, it was not an on-purpose miss, mm -hmm. that, it, that, uh, that actually we got out of the way and our intelligence. So, Dan, if it was, and Les, uh, chime in, if it wasn't an uh, on-purpose miss, um, does, uh, then perhaps, it, 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 is Iran done? Uh, with their retaliation 
because if it was an on-purpose miss, that mm -hmm. would sort of suggest that, okay, we have fired back, we've made our stand, and now we're standing down, and we, we don't want to get into war with the United States. If it was that our intelligence did that, then perhaps mm -hmm. Iran's not done. Uh, no, I think what we would be still remain concerned about with the Iranians, and as I discussed last week, would be that this was certainly the, the overt retaliation, one done from, launched from Iran, clearly uh, identified, and this was the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, getting revenge for their general, uh, their fallen general. Uh, what we'll still have to worry about, though, are things like cyber assassinations, kidnappings, hostage taking. The Iranian playbook I is not closed on this at all. Uh, and those are things that we'll have to be aware of as they as they continue to look for an asymmetric response. Uh, I, as I've said, I don't think they would go so far as to escalate with any strikes against the, the U.S. homeland uh, or any activity there. But you, you can't rule out anywhere else because, as we've seen in the past, from be it uh, Buenos Aires or Bulgaria or Bangkok, those are all places where the Iranians have attacked uh, Israelis, attacked other uh, tourists uh, to get their revenge and on a long time frame. You, you've got, you've, you've still got all of the natural tension between the U.S. and Iran. Correct. Their interests remain opposed in a bunch of places, particularly in Iraq, which is, you know, Iran's neighbor and our kind of vassal state from uh, the last 20 years. And, the, and there's still uh, Iranian-backed militias all over Iraq. There are U.S. troops in Iraq. You can imagine this thing blowing up again. Right now, I think both both countries have an interest in their in not pursuing overt acts, so they they're kind of using this as an excuse to kind of ramp down a little bit. But the tension is as as high as it ever was. What happens in Iraq? Well, I think that's a that's a question to see because that's a you have a caretaker government. the The country is basically cleaved into three divisions right now, uh, of of Sunni, Kurd, and, and Shia, and and Shia Iraq is is almost at this point completely lost to Iran and Iranian militias at this point. Uh, where the U.S. does have a reliable presence is with the Kurds, with the Sunnis uh, in the northwest of, of Iraq. But that country, uh, we have to watch that because that's on the verge of, I think, of, of if, if not a, a de facto fragmentation, a, a, a civil war uh, type environment in that country if that, if that Sunni on Shia violence restarts. Okay. All right. So... Uh, we still have tensions there uh, that aren't going away, and uh, uh, we are right back to hating each other uh, quietly as we have for f 50 years, it seems to me, and who knows how that's all going to end up. But uh, Middle East has not settled down, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you kind of come back from having shot down a full passenger airline jet? I mean, that's, that, 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 that's one of those sort of stunning moves that, uh, leave, I mean, mm -hmm. how do they how do they come back from that? Well, this is this is where the Iranian political system isn't helping the its its leaders, yeah. right? They're unable to respond in a in a real representative way to the concerns of the people. There were Iranians on that plane, Iranian students. Uh, other Iranian students are very upset by the lies initially told by the government. They're now realizing they made huge mistakes initially in the response, plus the shoot down itself. So they're they're kind of trying to claw their way back to some sort of respectable representation of their own people. And, and as Les said, this, this describes exactly, too, of when you look at a country like Iran where this missile battery we know was controlled by the IRGC, not the Iranian government. And that's, they're two separate entities that are operating within that country 
the, the IRGC reporting directly to the Ayatollahs as a separate military force, that leaves those civilian leaders, as you discussed, completely unable to respond because it is a entire shadow militia security force uh, that is running this. And that's what you see in these authoritarian countries, be it the, the FSBers who are close to Putin uh, or these, uh, the IRGC types in Iran. There is this separate security establishment from the, the regular establishment, and that regular establishment can't hold it to account in this spot. So I think you're going to see, you know, that playbook like we saw with the with the Saudis and Khashoggi. There's going to be a show trial. I feel, uh, you know, some poor company commander is going to be the scapegoat for this. Um, but we also have to ask this question, and it's one the United States asks. I think we ask of our European allies, but we should also ask of the Russians. They're selling advanced air defense systems to countries that aren't matching the training, the safety. And when you think about it in, a, in an era where uh, civil aviation is so important, these uh, anti-air systems and the proliferation of them are something that we should all be concerned about, particularly going to these, uh, you know, where they're sold to developing countries or rogue nations for hard currency. I'm reminded of that P.J. O'Rourke line about giving a fifth of whiskey and a car keys to uh, teenage boys. You know, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, same sort of thing. China. Let's, we've got so much, Dan. Mm -hmm. China, um, it looks like we have a deal that actually has more substance to it than I thought it was going to. Yeah, certainly the, the, the substance is there, and, and I think we, we have to admit that the, the president may have been right in some of the aspects of what pain this was causing the Chinese economy uh, and what they were willing to do to at least I don't think it was at the point where the uh, she or any of them were worried about a recession. I think they wanted to at least put a floor on how much the trade uh, relationship could deteriorate so that they have a sense of, of what they want to do going forward. Um, that said, though, we, none of the broader technology issues are, are resolved. The, the technology transfer, Huawei, those are going to be what we're, we're going to continue to butt heads on. And it's interesting, too. We even see uh, uh, Senator uh, Burr and Senator Warner just introducing a bill uh, that would subsidize a 5G open standard in the U.S. So that's going to be the kind of competition that we're going to continue to see between the two countries that, that has been going on, is going to intensify, and is largely unaddressed by this agreement. All of these things, be it uh, Iran, North Korea, or, the, or China, we're now looking at you know, we're, we're getting to the point where you can grade the first term of the Trump administration. And with all of those, there's been a lot of noise, but we seem to return to the, the status quo ante or, or just slightly improved, but really nothing transformative uh, or reshaping in any of those situations. No, no, you don't give less, you don't give the Trump administration credit here for having taken on this uh, issue with China, the unfair trade policies. Uh, the thefts, the everything else, uh, and having launched these, this sort of, I guess, uh, trade war, if you will, to try and curtail uh, their bad behavior. I mean, nobody else has taken this on. It seems that we've made more progress than any other president. Can we give the guy credit? No, I think we should. I, I think uh, I, I largely agree with Dan. I think we give him some credit, not a lot of credit, some credit. I think. Well, no, wait, hang on. <coughs> you, you give him credit for 
uh, you're not giving him a lot of credit for the result because the result's kind of a tepid result. Yeah. But do you give him credit for the effort? I mean, do you give him credit for Poli taking oh, on the issue? Oh, do you politically, it's it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's he's uh, portraying himself and he's putting himself in the position as being the antagonist to China. Very popular politically. He's got bipart bipartisan support on the Hill uh, across across the board. If anything, Congress is slightly to the right of Trump, so he's got to kind of do this. So I think, to his credit, he's, mm -hmm. he's kind of taken this on and put himself in the middle of a very hot topic. He's taking action. I think the actual effect is, is modest at best, but he has done a good job of portraying himself as the fighter for the American people here. Well, in many ways, he caused a problem. I mean, he, he, with the tariffs and everything, he, 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 started a, he caused a choke point, uh, if you will, in trade. Uh, and, and basically, uh, now he's uh, letting up on it. Um, and, and claiming success, and I think there is some success there from what I'm seeing in the agreement. But um, uh, and anyway, uh, it, it's, it, he doesn't seem to be, it, it, I understand it's not going to have that much traction in terms of, of material change in the Chinese behavior, but perhaps it's a start, Dan? Uh, I think perhaps it's a start. I think, uh, you know, for both sides, we benefit, like I said earlier, from having this floor at least on how the economic relationship can deteriorate. But beyond that, uh, there's there's going to be a lot to consider because this is going to be the relationship that defines the 21st century. Well, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. We have now covered Iran, Iraq, and China in segment two of the forecast. Uh, I'm going to ask Les and Dan to stay with us, and we're just going to keep this up for segment three. We're going to take a break right now uh, so that you can hear from all of our fabulous sponsors here on the forecast. And uh, we're going to be right back with the Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. This is Harry Jennings, producer for the Farcast. Thank you for listening. Michael welcomes guests every week to the Farcast to help uncover the trends that lie beneath the headlines that impact our world, the economy, and the investing environment. If you have a group or conference who would be interested in Michael presenting his assessment and forecast for the economy for the coming year, please give me a call at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. Michael has delivered the keynote address at the YPO Economic Summit, spoken at the Matheson Financial Advisors Conference, the Palm Beach Con Chamber of Commerce, and a wide range of other venues. We are booking now for dates in 2020. I'd be happy to talk to you about your audience and potential dates. And now, back to the forecast. Thank you for joining us on the forecast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the forecast. Terrific, fascinating forecast this morning, starting with Jim Murio and then, of course, Dan Mahaffey and Les Munson with us again, all forecast fan faves. Thank you also to you, our listeners, who are with us every week. We really appreciate it. And please share the forecast on your social media and email a link to a friend for us, will you? We appreciate very much that our listener base is growing and growing, and not only national, but now international. We like the notes that we get from you. Les Munson is a principal at the uh, in the international division at the BGR Group. It's a leading government relationships firm uh, here in Washington. He has over... 26 years of experience on Capitol Hill. He was in the executive branch. Uh, he was a staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, 
this is a Washington insider, one of the brightest guys we know. He's an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins and other places. Uh, Les, welcome. We're Thanks for having me. Here. Glad you're here. So we've, we've gotten into a whole lot this morning. And now, uh, what I want to cover in this order, if we can do this, is uh, we, there's breaking news out of Russia this morning that the Russians, Russia's government just resigned. And what that means is certainly not Putin, uh, but uh, Medvedev uh, is out. Uh, and then I want to just talk about that briefly. Then let's talk about the impeachment, which goes to the Senate today, apparently. The Democratic debates last night. And then finally, as Dan Mahaffey's still here too, let's take a look at the Trump presidency and offer some grades, not on the president's personality, but what would you, how would you score what's happened in the last three years? So a lot to cover. And when we think about all of this, I'm looking at things like interest rates. I'm looking at the dollar. I'm looking at the stability of it. As I look back over the past several years, we haven't seen any real private investment. We've seen the consumer carrying the entire economic load. Businesses haven't been investing. They haven't been investing for a bunch of reasons. Uh, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of increase in demand, though that could be picking up a little bit now. And we're seeing some wage gains, and that's a good sign. But in general, the, the uh, business landscape has been very uncertain uh, with tariffs, with international relations, with policy changes, with all of these things corporate America hasn't invested. Could that change now with a Chinese trade deal? Uh, are we going to see perhaps more stability out of Russia? Are we going to get a better sense of what's going on on Capitol Hill? All of this matters to markets as uh, because on the forecast, we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. So we're, we are going all the way around the globe here uh, this morning on the forecast. So the Russian news, the government's resigned. Les, what does that mean? Well, I think it, it's good for Vladimir Putin. He's clearly positioning himself for the next iteration of his rule in Moscow. Medvedev was seen as one of the few people <clears throat> who might actually be able to succeed Putin. He's now farther out of the picture than he was before. So I think this is, this is Putin strengthening his hand, getting ready to make some changes going into, the ne into this year and, and beyond. President Putin isn't going anywhere. Is that right, Dan? Uh, no, I think he's, he's pretty comfy. President Xi isn't going anywhere. Uh, he's nope. decided he's going to be president for life. All of these foreign leaders, uh, I didn't realize that Marion Barry would be, you know, uh, such a policy model uh, <laughs> for governments around the world. Marion Barry, ladies and gentlemen, for the non-Washingtonians, uh, was five-term, six-term mayor in Washington. Self-appointed mayor for life. Mayor for life. He used to call himself the mayor for life which seemed to come to a screeching halt, we all thought, when he was convicted on camera of smoking crack cocaine with a prostitute in a hotel room. Well, she set him up. Uh, he, we all know he, that. he explained that um, in no so uncertain eloquently. terms that she set him up. He was not, he didn't do that, and he didn't offer her much flattery as he, as he said that she set he him up. He was not a gentleman. He went to jail. Uh, and most times, you know, other than, you know, for people who live in Chicago, if your mayor goes to jail, you don't come back and get elected as mayor again. But <laughs> hold all <laughs> tickets, because that's exactly what Marion Barry did. Uh, uh, and I think they ultimately the federal government negotiated him out of the position. They, they, 
they had him on a couple of other. Didn't he go, then go to the city council? I think it was a city council yes, he did. Uh, member for some time. But they got rid of him that, as yeah. mayor because he th there were still uh, issues. So anyway, I, I met the mayor a number of times, uh, uh, chatted with him. Uh, no surprise, uh, Mayor Barry could be absolutely charming. Um, very anyway, who knows? <laughs> uh, so uh, Russia, uh, Putin stays. Poor President Medvedev is gone and, and Putin's gonna have his President Xi mayor for life moment. Um, impeachment less is happening today. What does that mean on Capitol Hill? Why is this taking so long? Is anything going to happen in the Senate? I don't think so. You know, there's there's been a couple of little news notes. Uh, John Bolton said he'd be willing to testify if the Senate decided to call witnesses. That's kind of interesting. I don't think it's gonna happen. Uh, Speaker Pelosi was holding back the articles of impeachment from the House, of course, for several weeks, kind of waiting to see what the landscape was going to look like. doesn't seem like she's going to win that battle. The articles will go to the Senate. There'll be a quick process in the Senate where the president won't be removed from office and we can all move on with our lives. Does it? Would it make sense for Mitch McConnell to uh, string along these hearings so that he ties up the three Democratic senators and keeps them off of the campaign trail. Well, you, you gotta kinda wonder, was, was Pelosi, when she held back the articles, was she trying to help Joe Biden? Because it, the net effect was, she kinda sucked up all the news out of the Democratic Party. People weren't really paying attention to Iowa, made it hard for anyone to break through. Joe Biden's been kinda maintaining this lead in the, in the polls there. If he wins in a couple of weeks in the in the caucuses there, he's he's going to be in the poll position in New Hampshire. He can end up being the nominee. She might have done him a big favor with all of this. I watched the Democratic debates last night. I presume you guys did too. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's we watch it so your listeners don't have to. Well, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that's the greatest <laughs> service. I mean, other than actually throwing themselves on a grenade, I will tell you, uh, there was uh, I did watch, uh, and it was though I watched the uh, uh, Jeopardy. The greatest yes. of all yeah. time. God, I love that. Yeah. Oh, God, the Jeopardy last night. I mean, it's those guys are so unbelievably smart. If only one of them were running. Honest to God. Isn't but Yang? Yeah, wasn't Yang one of yeah. them? Is yeah. he, oh, was he doing that instead of the debate? That makes sense. You, you, you wish. Uh, that, that, uh, that only one of them got Iago as the final answer for having more speeches than the protagonist yeah. in a Shakespearean... <laughs> You know, I came up with a couple of different answers there, and Laurie actually, sh she shot out Iago uh, before I did. Um, uh, and because I, w I, was, uh, I, was thinking, I, I was thinking about Shylock, uh, but that's a comedy. Uh, Merchant of Venice is a comedy. So I, but uh, anyway, so it was terrific, and Iago was the answer, and he won a million dollars. It was really cool. Uh, okay, then I had to watch the debates, as mm -hmm. did you two. Uh, what did you make of all of that without too much grueling detail mm -hmm. because we have still more to do here. I think this is, uh, you have four horses going to the finish line neck and neck in Iowa. And we, you know, as much as we talk about horse racing or uh, looking at poll numbers, this is now in the hands of the voters at this point. So let's see, you know, how you have, uh, you know, Buttigieg certainly continuing to do well in uh, He's Iowa, very New impressive. Hampshire. Yes, and I, I think the I hate all know, of his policies, but the man is impressive. <laughs> it's it's impressive, and it's it's also the way he's covered in the media. And uh, I think part of this dynamic has to go with the fact too that the 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 teacher's pet image that he has uh, does not play well with all the journalists who you know who like to think of themselves as as edgy and and uh, you know 
iconoclastic in their coverage. Uh, no, Buttigieg, well, Biden, uh, but neither Biden nor Sanders did anything to, to consolidate their, you know, leads, if you would call them that. Uh, Warren didn't do anything Wait a to minute. disqualify How can a her? married gay man candidate not be edgy enough for the media? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think part of it is that it, you know, he was off to McKinsey making money when a lot of these journalists were struggling with freelance jobs and finding an apartment in Brooklyn. It's there's, well, a, there's might, a certain amount of jealousy. Be, he might be secretly a capitalist, which well, is of true. concern oh, in yes, this party. He, he yeah. does somehow believe that a, a not market economy. Not if you look economy. at any one of his proposed policies. If I thought the well, that's why I say secretly. I, I think they're, it would I think be a they're big very secret. suspicious of him. Yeah, uh, that would be that would be a big secret. Um, so, uh, less quickly. Uh, uh, let, let's just take a look. Uh, uh, S Senator Warren, uh, how'd she do last night? I, d I don't think she distinguished herself much from the other folks. I think it was it was rather bland, and they seemed old and very white. It made me miss the fringe candidates, Tulsi, Yang, mm -hmm. uh, Marianne Williamson. It would have been nice to have a her in there. A, B, C, or D, great for her. Give her a C. Give her a C, Okay. Yeah, I would say I would actually give everyone across the board C's or B minuses in that range. Everyone was trying to avoid an unforced error. judge. I give him a B. B I think he did fine. Yeah, B B, B, B minus. Uh, how about uh, Senator Sanders? Well, he's there. He's not in the hospital. He was on yeah, the debate stage, so I think you got to give him at least a B or a B plus for that. <laughs> yeah, I think I still think though that for being when, able to stand. That's yeah, right. well, maintaining again, verticality. He's there for an hour and a half. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, overall graded well again, but neither Warren nor Sanders was able to. None of them are able to consolidate that lane in twenty days. Um, and that's going to be up to the voters to decide which who's the progressive. Yeah, I don't. Here. I don't think this has an impact on the vote in Iowa. It's going to be a ground game. That's yeah. a that's a place where personality matters. The folks you have on the ground. Are you Uncle Joe? What about Uncle Joe? I don't think he hurt himself. I don't think he helped himself. No. Uh, he had a couple of moments of where he looked good. He had a couple of other moments where he didn't know what he was talking about. And, yeah, and like why did I come in here? Yeah, and um, and Les is pointing out where something my that car I, keys? I think it's worth uh, hammering home to your listeners. Iowa is not a, a primary or a traditional election. You are not going in there to cast a ballot all day long. This is about who can come into the caucuses in the evening, who can spend an hour, hour and a half there. So even if you're looking at, at polling data, those aren't necessarily the people who are going to show up to these caucuses. So like Les said, it is about how these campaigns are, are moving pledged caucus goers, getting them out that night and... Let, we'll have to check on the weather, all those fun things that and make Iowa. Did you Iowa. see that at the end of the evening, uh, Senator Warren would not shake Senator Sanders' hand? He reached out his hand to shake hands, and she just stared at it and turned away? It's, it's odd, because they're, they're friends in the Senate. They did collaborate on a bunch of stuff. They come from the same place, largely, ideologically. But it's always been a threat, hasn't it, that one would consolidate his mm -hmm. or her base w with the other, and maybe if there is that now schism among Democrats, does that strengthen the hand then of Biden and uh, uh, I guess uh, Mayor Bloomberg still in this along? And so three candidates, says Greg Valliere, uh, we've got Bloomberg, we've got Biden, and we've got Trump. Bloomberg we're not going to know about for a while. I think the person to watch, my view, is Klobuchar. Her expectations mm -hmm. are so low going into Iowa that if she finishes in the top three or four, it's going to be seen as a victory. She could get a little momentum going into New Hampshire. She could become kind of that younger, more energetic, moderate 
uh, Democrat and possibly well, she's the de facto Biden. vice president candidate, vice presidential candidate on that ticket, isn't she? I think I, I think the Democrats have to have at least one person on the ticket who's not white. Well, don't they have to have one person on the ticket who's not a hundred years old? <laughs> that may also be true. I I, I mean, um, we're getting to the point where we're going to need multiple vice presidents to check the boxes at this point. Um, Senator McCain, yeah. I think, taught us all a lesson that you should be very careful about your vice president. They just can't be a younger woman because that can also lead to trouble. Now, uh, quickly here, and we're already out of time, and this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you to our listeners. But now I want to take a look at the Trump presidency, and we're going to do this quickly, which might be the best and least painful way to do it. Uh, how would you grade the accomplishments and what has what have happened, what hasn't happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly, without, if you can, separate from his personality. Uh, uh, so many people tell me that they like what he's done, but they don't like the way he's done it, and they don't like the way he, but they, they give him credit for what he's done. A lot of his supporters say that to me. Other people on the other side of the aisle just tell me that they hate him, they hate everything about him, he's never done anything good, and he never will, and you know, every the world will be better place uh, when he's no longer here. Uh, and those are the ones who seemed a bit kinder um, <laughs> in their reaction to the president. So let's start with you, Les. Well, how do you grade the Trump presidency? I'm going to give him a divided grade on the economy. I'm going to give him an A. We're yes. doing great. All the metrics are terrific. Uh, folks at the lower end of the economic spectrum are doing really well. Yes. It's an untold story. He yes. deserves credit for that. Yes. He hasn't screwed anything up. We yes. thought this tariff thing would go badly. It didn't. Credit to him. On foreign policy, I think I'd give him a B or a B minus. A lot of missed opportunities. I don't like the antagonism towards allies. I think there's a lot of a lot of ways he could improve him, his performance on international affairs. Okay. So fitting with Les, I, I kind of give it a, a cumulative B minus um, and agree with a lot of what he said on on foreign policy, on the economy. I think where where I fault it is. I just think how much more of their agenda could have actually been accomplished, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, um, if there had been some kind of managerial focus, uh, adult voice in this administration. Uh, for everyone who hates the president's personality and dislikes what his policies, uh, you should be thankful for his personality because that has actually prevented him from getting more done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, so there is some credit here for this president yeah. uh, from those who are willing to be objective. And it is that credit that could persuade voters again in November to cast votes for Donald Trump. Uh, as from, from the other folks, we've got two Capitol Hill experts here in the studio with us this morning. The, my other Capitol Hill experts tell me uh, he's still the odds-on favorite. The path of least resistance to the pres next president of the United States is Donald Trump. True? Pe people, people vote on job security. Their jobs are secure. The economy's doing great. People aren't as worried about the future as they normally are. That's going to that's gonna translate into votes for Trump. I always believed that until I watched Brexit. Uh, I've never seen people vote against their own economic interest. I was so sure that the Brits would not vote against their own economic interest, and there they did it. And uh, when I look at it, my best understanding is that they voted against their economic interest because they didn't understand that they were voting against their economic interest. They were persuaded that the issues were more protectionist and they weren't going to have any of those furners in there bothering them taking their jobs. They live on an island. They're a little bit crazy.
reason. Well, <laughs> and I think they proved it. If Dan? Well, and I, th I yeah, I think President Trump is is still that favorite. You know, the question just becomes what what price are we going to pay in 2020 just in the divisiveness? Um, you know, no matter what President Trump has accomplished in his agenda, agree, disagree, and and I think this is pre-Trump and what we see is symptomatic of it, but just that our, our politics are now so divisive that we we don't have a, a clear national interest that we can pursue. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another Farcast. What a terrific discussion. I always learn so much from all of these very bright people who come on and share their experience and wisdom and insights with us each week. As we look at markets and we look at the economy and you try and digest everything that you've heard from us on this particular Farcast, Inflation is still very low. The producer price index came out this morning very low, absolutely flat below expectations. We're not seeing inflation. We have very low interest rates. GDP growth is tepid. Everything is moving on at a rather solid pace. I'm concerned about the level of complacency, but given the debt that is continuing to be built, that's going to bite us in the ass sooner or later. Excuse me, but it will. And uh, But in the meantime, that day doesn't matter until it matters. Hmm? Doesn't matter till it matters, and it doesn't matter right now because the Federal Reserve is shoveling money into this market and the federal government is spending money they don't have. As long as all that money's coming in, the balloon, I believe, continues to inflate. Worrisome, but let's have some assets that inflate along with it. We're going to talk about more. We're going to figure out what happens and how it's going to affect your portfolios as we examine Wall Street, Washington, and the world on the Farcast next week. Thanks so much for being with us in Washington, D.C. For the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue Season 3 on the Farcast. And thanks to Michael's guests today, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and Lester Munson. We come to you every week with experts and insiders to help you gain a deeper understanding of the forces that impact the economy and the investing landscape. Please subscribe and share with a friend. Our year-end specials are now available, including Michael's Top 10 and our year-end All-Star Review. The Farcast is available for free on Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast platforms. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. Let us know what you like, what questions you have, and what topics you'd like to hear in the coming weeks. We'd like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and it should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. Before you make any financial or investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to us at hjennings at farmmiller.com, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment professionals. We'll be back with you next week. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.